Good morning and welcome. How's everyone doing today? This is Seeking Sustainability Live. I'm JJ Walsh, a sustainability-focused business and travel consultant in Hiroshima, Japan. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Jackie Steele, who runs and founded the Enjoy Diversity and Innovation Network and Consulting Group. She's doing a lot of exciting things, and she has started her own talk show with thought partners who are in her network in order to discuss innovation in diversity management and how we can create more inclusive Japanese businesses and society for the future. And with the amazing Dr. Jackie Steele. Thank you for joining, Jackie. Thanks for having me, JJ. So I was checking, we talked last August. So it's not quite a year since we talked, um, but we covered a lot about your writing and the work that you're doing. But I think so much has happened in this year that it's so wonderful to connect again and uh, talk about how things have changed, how they've stayed the same, mm. your vision for the future, your philosophy. <laughs> so let's start a little bit uh, with your, your profile. What do you do? So you're a political scientist, you're an author, you're a lecturer, and you are CEO of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation, and you also have become a talk show host. <laughs> which is amazing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Enjoy Diversity and Innovation? Yes, I would love to. And and of course, you know, it was a year ago that I was on your show. But of course, we just had a lovely talk last last Tuesday on Diversity Rocks Innovation, right? The new live stream. So this is lovely to also, you know, take up the conversation from, from last week. Um, I mean, I think first off, uh, enjoy diversity and innovation. We are uh, a blended uh, boutique uh, company that is looking to provide really high level expertise on diversity and on Japan and diversity in Japan for senior leaders um, who would like to, in some ways, have a boot camp uh, uh, immersion into really understanding how we can build out diversity, equity, and innovation as a business strategy. And the other piece of what we do, of course, is then uh, helping with change management uh, and helping companies through consulting services to really build out an ecosystem that is diversity positive uh, and where there really is an equal playing field to build another sort of um, alternative corporate culture model, uh, I think, where we really would see much more innovation, much more well-being. Um, and of course, much more uh, profits for the bottom line is, is obviously the other, the other benefit. So. Yeah, great. Before I continue, I'd love to give a shout out to all the wonderful sponsors of the Seeking Sustainability Live program. Thank you so much to all of you who have promoted the episodes, who have liked, who have commented, and who have donated to the Buy Me A Coffee page or the Coffee page or joined as a member on Patreon or YouTube. Your support really means a lot. Thank you so much. Now let's, let's talk first about your thought partners because I think your thought partners for your business as well as for your talk show hmm. are kind of a interesting group of people that you want to use in kind of a networking way and for sharing knowledge. Can you mm -hmm. tell us about the Thought Partners idea? Sure. And I mean, this, I guess this idea has been evolving over the last two years. I, um, I learned of this concept of thought partnering. It was something that an executive coach out of Seattle, uh, Izumi Yamamoto was, uh, you know, put, she put an offer to me. She said, you know, Jackie, as you're, as you're building your business and as you're, you know, leading your leadership journey, if you ever want to thought partner with me, just give me a call, happy to do so. And I really thought, wow, that's a, a really interesting offer. And it's a really interesting concept. And it's of course a practice. And I thought I wanted to bring this practice um, into the core of the way enjoy could be living and breathing 
a different kind of networking that is really demonstrating the value of diversity. Um, and so the goal was to say, we want to feature and I want to feature through this, this network, a group of individuals who are leading in their industry, in their professional arena, and who are from literally all walks and backgrounds and social identities, different nationalities, different sexual orientations. And it's really this combination of naturally for me, bringing not only idea pluralism, so the diversity of thought uh, and different uh, worldviews uh, that come through, you know, idea pluralism as we would talk about it in political science um, and how that thought diversity combined with social identity diversity and I always work and we work with enjoy um, always from a Canadian intersectional approach to uh, social identities and there's at least you know 10 different identity points that often often are important to having a sense of equal playing field and an experience of equality in society and so we look at those and of course professional expertise across different multi-stakeholder engagement spaces so shining a light on how as as professionals we can partner we can share our views and our expertise our lived experiences and our social dynamics of equality and inequality privilege and sometimes not so privileged all of that richness i really see as a driver of innovation and as a driver of innovation in my company already um i thought partner with all of these different individuals from time to time in an organic way you know i'll, I'll ask I'll call them up and say hey could I bend your ear and get some advice on X or Y? And then they will say, hey, I'm looking for a speaker on this kind of a thing. Who could you recommend and who do you know from your networks? And so there's this organic give and take, uh, ask and give, I think, over the sharing of our expertise and of ourselves as professionals that I think is just really helpful for, for getting outside of our heads when we're stuck with the problem and you need to thought partner it and you need to really talk it through. And having those different thought partners, initially they were people I had relations of trust with, or what we would say in Japanese, the shin naikanke. And so I started there and thought, well, those are people I turn to for advice and, and um, good judgment, and who I know to be diversity positive leaders. Predominantly they're living in Japan, but many of them are also in Asia Pacific and even in Canada and the United States. Um, and I just think it's been a wealth of support and then I wanted to be able to feature and role model and make visible all of these people are, you know, rocking diversity and they're rocking innovation in their own way in Japan or across Asia Pacific. And I wanted to make that visible as a value proposition and say, this is really, this is really not, um, this is not so out of the blue. This is, you know, diversity positive leadership. It is quite present in Japan, but it's not maybe visible enough. And I thought if I could at least shine a light on all of these leaders who I think are, are thought leaders and thought partners, certainly, um, then we can change the attitudes and the conversation slowly about diversity in Japan. I mean, often people misunderstand Japan to be homogeneous because that's, you know, the post-World War II mythology that has been built up around Japanese citizenship and Japanese-ness. But in my experience, um, both as a, as a Japan scholar, um, none of the research supports that view of Japan <laughs> uh, as a homogeneous society. Um, the research really contests that actively, but the popular view is still that Japan is homogeneous, that there's not really a lot of diversity. And really, I think there couldn't be anything further from the truth. So really then shining a light on saying diversity is positive. It's already here in Japan. Let's find it and let's expose it. And I'm not, I'm not just talking race. I'm not just talking gender. I'm not just talking sexual orientation. Really, it's, it's, it's a really broad reading of how diversity uh, manifests across, across a population and across a country. That's so interesting and so important to be shining a light on and talking about in many different ways. I'm just showing some of the events that you have uh, <laughs> been a part of in the past because I notice a lot of the people that you are in these events with in the past have become thought partners. So yes. that seems to maybe have informed a lot of your ideas for the idea of thought partnering and for getting these people as a part of your your team. So it's it's great to see this kind of historically for well, you. And to be honest, I invited I, I found these individuals and then had these amazing mind melds and COVID, you know, in that sense, made the world a lot smaller. 
And so I would I would find these individuals and I would reach out to them on LinkedIn or in, or in different spaces and I would say, I'd love to hear more about what you're doing. Um, and then we would have a, a wonderful mastermind conversation and I would invite them to be a part of the Enjoy Thought Partner Network. And what that meant was then when I was curating events and I would be thinking, okay, for this you know Global Summit event, if I wanna be thinking about challenging stereotypes on six different fronts in the way that we show up and who I invite, which of the thought partners do I want to put in combination? So it was actually that they were thought partners first. And then I had this wealth of individuals and I knew all of their deep backstories because we'd had the, you know, the mind meld over these long conversations, these rich two hour conversations. And then I could say, oh, wow, like this person's view on masculinity put together with that person's view on accessibility and this person's view of nationality and hybridity and then i could imagine how we would really roll like roll out a showcasing of what intersectional diversity can accomplish and how we can challenge stereotypes but in a really positive way um and so i would i would choose certain people oh you're you're a foreigner in japan longtime foreign resident and you speak japanese but you're a foreign resident i want you to be the japanese speaker for this panel i don't want you speaking english i want you to intervene in japanese to challenge the stereotype there or you know you are an expert in this but but let's talk about only that and let's not talk about the fact that you might have a disability and people will know you have a disability they can see it but we're not going to talk about it because we don't need to talk about it we need to talk about your professional expertise and how you show up as a professional and so there's different ways that then i could see ah oh, this is really exciting to put these different thought partners in dialogue and then they would meet and then they would be like, wow, I really learned a lot from that person. And so, for example, Shu Matsuo Post, then I could introduce to Jake Stika in Canada, Vancouver, and then they could pursue conversations on masculinity and how men can be, you know, agents for change. Um, and so then all of these little flourishing magic happening across and in between thought partner collaborations that that can come of the the next steps of the thought partnering, that it's not just me to these individuals, but it's also them within each other. Um, but it's all very organic and unstructured. I'm not trying to curate it in a, in a way because I think everyone in this network <laughs> is absolutely, uh, you know, running full speed, 150% you know, as, as different uh, career people with families and with volunteer roles. And so they've got multiple things on their plates. And my goal is to sort of say, when they feel that organically there's something there that they want to explore with someone or with me then the magic will happen but it's it's not forced because everyone's really busy and the pandemic has taken a toll and i don't want there to be any sense of obligation or you know you have to participate in certain ways or other ways i want it to really be a sense of they're there and they have your back if you want to explore them there may be a safety net if you're looking for advice on something if you want an introduction that's great. Uh, if you don't need any of it at this time, that's totally fine too. Um, and each person I think weighs in and, and uses it in a different way. So that's, and that's part of the diversity of praxis too, diversity of tactics. That's awesome. Uh, thanks Louise for joining. Louise is very active on HAPS and she's a, a tour guide in Auckland, New Zealand. Oh, and wonderful. She introduces so much diversity and innovation from her area as well. So it's great. She could join. Thanks Louise. Thank you, Louise. Um, when I talked to you last week, we, we mentioned a little bit about intersectionality <laughs> and you're doing a two and a half hour workshop uh, seminar for uh, organizations yeah. or companies that want to level up, shall we yeah. say. Uh, can, you, can you introduce that? It's such an important topic. Sure. And I mean, there's a lot of, um, I guess one of the reasons I left my academic position and just, I, I was at Nagoya Law and I decided, you know, at, at this point, maybe this is not my highest purpose and maybe I can have more impact really sharing this, you know, 25 years of expertise on how to build out diversity mainstreaming or in, in Canada, we might call it gender-based analysis plus now in terms of what they do through the Canadian federal government. But really in, in Canadian feminist movements and in Canadian feminist public policy and just in public public policy in Canada, we've been working with these models of intersectionality and intersectional approaches to basically solve for multiple inequalities at the same time. And I think for me, it's a public policy toolkit. Um, it's a concept, it's an approach, but it's just a toolkit. And it's exceptionally efficient. 
um, and evidence-based. And because we can uh, think and you map out basically, and I'm trying to, to help uh, companies and also um, policymakers in Japan who are interested in the Canadian model, um, think about what is the value added of saying rather than take a single issue because we don't live single issue lives. We have complex lives and integrated diversities. And so if within companies we could say, what are the pain points around gender, sexual orientation, race, foreign talent, uh, language barrier, uh, multiculturalism in terms of corporate culture, disability and accessibility, um, migrant status or immigrant status in Japan, visa status. If we can think about all those and map out the diversities, map out the inequalities and where they intersect, and think about corporate policies and corporate practices that could mitigate across you know, five or six things at the same time, it just is exceptionally efficient and, um, and tactical. And it allows us to really develop more uh, holistic well-being for the employees in the system and for the employees, not just, uh, not just for women, not just for um, people with disabilities in, in a silo separate from everybody else, not just um, mothers in a silo from everyone else. Um, in some ways, it helps us correct for what I see to be often the misdiagnosis of the problem. And if I take, for example, um, caregiving or, or the mothering question in Japan, gender is taken to be so cross-cutting, and it really is, but it's not necessarily gender or, or sex. It is really the caregiving and the mental burden and the emotional burden that comes with all of household running, caregiving, school liaison and communications and volunteerism. Um, but caregiving is not just about those elements. It's also about elder care. It's also about caring for a child with a disability or a child that has a learning disability and needs more schooling support and more homework support and more guidance. And, um, and it could be caring for an adult child with a disability who is not able to seek autonomy and be self-sufficient. Those are all the range of caregiving issues that I'm not seeing companies tackle holistically necessarily because they might be tackling it through a misdiagnosis of, oh, we have a woman problem and if we want to support women, then we need to solve their mothering issues. So let's give them flex time. And so we get a flex time policy and we solve for one little small issue and then we tick a box and we say we're done. But we've missed, you know, how many other caregiving issues that really needed to be thought out, mapped out. And then, of course, if you can map out those full boundaries of the caregiving issues, there's like 10 different groups potentially who benefit from that policy and who feel a sense of ownership and gratitude around that policy and feel a sense of inclusion around having their caregiving responsibilities be heard, be seen. Um, and so the challenge, I think, what intersectionality does is to say, it's not enough to just put people in categorical boxes, men, women, non-binary, mother, father, parent, those box assignments, um, they don't always solve the, the puzzle. The pain point isn't necessarily about the legal identity or the social identity itself. It's the way that that social identity is, is impacted by these other inegalitarian factors in the broader culture, in the family system, uh, in the way that maybe the, the workday is a really long FaceTime driven workday. Um, and so we need to first start diagnosing the full extent of the pain point and who all is affected. And there's going to be multiple groups. And then maybe we think about, you know, the policy innovation and the different ways. And there has to be a diversity of tactics. Often it's not just one policy. It's going to be a policy approach that needs to be fixed. It also might mean changes the in, changing the informal practices because maybe it's not a problem with policy. Maybe there's the best policy on the books ever but no one's listening to it and no one's respecting it because the informal culture takes over and it's actually the culture that's the problem. So there's a diversity of tactics that then when you're doing change management, you need to mobilize to actually have the diversity positive ecosystem be, yes, the rules of engagement around the policies are laid out in an, in an effective way with intersectional diversity, but then implementing it right through to the grassroots and to challenging 
the informal in a, in une, unequal ways in which um, it's it's the it's the informal cultural pieces that also need to be adapted. So it's never one tactic. It's never a simple box tick for one group and then we're done. And I think that's where I would love a more holistic, you know, take a step back and say, let's think how we build coalitions for change inside the company by really thinking about multiple groups benefiting from a change management initiative. Yeah. That is, it's so interesting and so important. And I know that you're doing this workshop for two and a half hours. So if you're working with an organization or a group, um, I would assume that you're doing some group work, you're doing some kind of troubleshooting. What, what's the demographics of your organization? Let's think about what the intersectionality might be for your staff or your group in, in particular. Is, is that the kind of tactic for this kind of session? You there's, said up to 25 people. Well, right? there's two. Con so right now, I think the one that you're referencing is the one that's on the website currently and, and been made available. That one is more an introductory level uh, introduction of intersectional thinking as an approach to helping your people systems change paradigms, change from, uh, you know, uh, thinking about people in silos in different identity groups to helping the leaders in a team or in a company first off understand diversity and reframe diversities plural as impacting every single individual in the company. That's, that's kind of the intersectional thinking 101 uh, introductory course or workshop, I should say. And it's very applied. It's very hands-on. It's participatory. It's experiential. It's fun. Obviously, it enjoy. We want everything to be enjoyable because otherwise, I think people don't learn things. If it's not fun and enjoyable, we use music. We use, uh, you know, uh, activities that are participatory. We do report backs. We do small group breakout. Um, and the goal is to really have people first have a whole bunch of aha moments about themselves individually, about their complex diversities. So they can then start reframing, okay, they actually now realize they individually have probably 10 identity points that really matter to them, and that they hadn't really thought of. And they hadn't really thought about whether their own identity points and their diversities were being supported or not supported at work. Um, and this is true for the men in the room and for the women in the room and for non-binary people and for foreigners and for Japanese nationals and for, you know, various different individuals. They all, what's so fascinating is they have these aha moments about their own diversities. And I think we have to start from the individual and the personal. And then we move to the people systems in the second workshop. And for the second workshop, it's for those leaders who really want to build this as a critical thinking toolkit tool into how they troubleshoot their people systems, how they troubleshoot and build inclusion into how they design their meetings, how they design their policies, how they design for initiatives, and how they're thinking about really building coalitions for change around a given pain point that they might be having in the company. So uh, the first one is more people individual approach to help them really understand the concept itself, because there's still not really a lot of people who grasp even what intersectionality would mean for themselves or what what does intersectional diversity mean and why does it apply to every single individual? Uh, and that's the very first realization and paradigm shift I need first to really be developed lock, or rock solid um, because then it's no longer an issue of, oh, this initiative is, let's make an initiative for women. You would never do that route. You would never choose that ever again as your approach if you understand intersectional thinking. and later on if you want it for senior leaders or for or for uh, hr learning and development there's another uh, workshop where we can do that as a troubleshooting of the pain points that they might be having as a company um but often that gets into more the consulting side too and some some companies don't want to be having those conversations unless it's a bespoke uh as bespoke workshop in-house only for them because they don't want to talk about their pain points as a company right in a broad workshop that could involve different uh, different participants. So the one that's sort of B2C is the one that you put up there and that's more B2C. I also do offer it bespoke uh, for the company in-house to help their people shift out of, I guess, you know, unconscious bias training has become the, the buzz go-to 
but I guess the challenge is it's not necessarily moving the dial to change the paradigm that people are using to think about how does that impact the way they see their relations of solidarity with which other groups in the company? Um, how do they build solidarities with multiple groups? And then how do they think about building a workplace and a shared space of work engagement that supports multiple diversities? Um, I think that working on individual bias or unconscious bias, sometimes it's just awareness raising and awareness raising is never bad, but it's not a systemic intervention. It's not a change management solution. Yeah. Uh, we can be educated. And I, 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 I always remember the campaign that was done in, J maybe it was in Japan or maybe it was elsewhere, but the idea where you had, you would walk into a hotel and they would say, they would have all these posters everywhere. Turn off the lights, turn off the lights, turn off the lights, turn off the lights, save energy. This is ecosystem, eco-friendly, turn off the lights. And they, you know, educate, educate, educate the interval, the bias in the individual. Let's educate it out of them. And everywhere before you go out the door, like every single possible sign. And still people would walk out and they wouldn't turn off all the lights because it's just like, it's just a hassle and it's mendoxai, right? People are lazy. And so people would fall back into their bad habits and they still wouldn't do it, right? And so you can educate till you're blue in the face, but does it actually lead to a systemic change that solves the problem and the pain point? Maybe not. And so what did business hotels do? They initiated the key, right? The key and the electricity uh, socket. And so when you want to walk out the door, you have to take the key out and then poof, the power goes out. Yeah, no, it's, and, and it's, it's a systemic intervention, right? There's no there's wonderful solutions where you don't have to hit the problem head on. Right. Right. And so um, this is where I think. Good day, yeah. Ross. Ross has joined from Australia. Nice to see you here. Um, one of one of the great examples that I came across way before COVID was uh, with Mazda, Mazda cars in Hiroshima. Hmm. And they developed a strategy to save energy. And in the meanwhile, they discovered they had solved a lot of problems for diverse groups in hmm. Mazda. Hmm. So they said from nine to five, Monday through Friday, that's the working time after five, all the lights go out. Nobody's allowed to do overtime work everybody goes home and in japan this is a big problem because even mm. if you say no overtime <laughs> if, if the managers are there working uh -huh. people are gonna stay people are not gonna leave right but this mm -hmm. solved a lot of problems for working mothers for working parents uh, people taking care of elderly yeah. for people who were feeling burnt out i mean it's just huge, huge problems solved across a wide range so when I think of intersectionalities, yes. problem solving, Absolutely. I think of things like that, right? That, that's a beautiful example that cuts across, you know, those issues around social inequalities or social identity group, you know, the pain points that we feel, but also across, you know, how do we build a sustainable system with our ecosystem where we're being energy saving. I mean, if you think about it, I can imagine, you know, that then Mazda is also saving a lot of energy consumption uh, for those times of the days, all, you know, keeping the lights on until 11 p.m. with very low productivity rates happening during that, you know, 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. time period. So what a waste, right? And so you can think about sustainability, not only across your people systems, but also across um, across your your sustainability goals in terms of environmental, you know, sustainability as well. So the, the ESG conversation for me is really exciting because we can think about the environmental side, we can think about the social justice or the equality side, and we can think about our governance processes, transparency, accountability for our governance and diversity on, on governance as well as a holistic, fully complete intersectional uh, perspective as well. And I think once we can first develop really good education and literacy around why thinking intersectionally, even around just social identity groups and caregiving roles and broader societal roles that can lead to inequality inadvertently um, through just past cultural uh, ignorance around those issues. Um, if we can get knowledge and, and awareness and familiarity of that way of thinking holistically, systems-based, ecosystems-based, then it's of course natural to also think about it ecosystem-based with environmental concerns as well for all the kinds of work and, and the, the passion that you have as well for sustainability. But so far again, everything's in silos. 
Um, and that silo approach ultimately is not very effective. And I know certain people will say, well, you want to tackle one thing and do it right before you can move on. But at the same time, then you're obviously saying, I'm going to solve for this part of the pie, when really this part of the pie is the pain points are originating from like the whole this pie. Everything how, is how can we How can everything. we really not do the broader analysis? And I don't Absolutely. think we need, we don't solve everything at the same time, but you start from the broader analysis and then you make some value decisions and say, okay, we have, you know, maybe we have six different core pain points as a company. Which one can you move the dial on fastest with the least amount of resources for the best amount of well-being and profit savings? And then there's really a value judgment that the leadership team sits down and says, which do we want to tackle first and why? And those are political choices. I, I'm not going to... Uh, beat around the bush about that when you have six different you know people problems uh inequality problems and you choose which one is best for your company building and your business strategy and your branding and affecting the most people those those are politically those are political choices uh they're principled choices that need to be weighed in with the the corporate philosophy with how the the company and its leaders want to show up in the world and where they can put their resources to move the dial in certain ways uh, that supports the company's sustainability and also their people systems sustainability. And I think we need to, you know, be eyes wide open about that and not think that it's not um, a, a difficult dis decision as well. It's, it's a principled decision, but it's also gonna be slightly political and it's gonna be very affected by the economic bottom line too. And that's what leadership requires. And so, presidents and corporate boards and the leadership team needs to step up and say, okay, where do we stand on this? And what are we willing to show up and say, we want to do as a company for our legacy? Because if they're there for the long game, um, then I think they can make those, those decisions and feel confident in them that they will get as far as they can, um, as quickly as they can. And ultimately, I, I really believe that investments in those people systems is such a an amazing return on investment uh, for the company's longevity and the company's success and innovation. We know that when people show up and they feel they have psychological safety to be who they are in all their diversity and to not have to, you know, hide certain parts of themselves or feel shame about certain parts of themselves, the creativity and the enthusiasm that you can get out of people, right, for the tasks at hand um, is so much bigger. I mean, obviously, it's so much greater what you what people will bring to the table when they're feeling empowered and yeah. and lit up and excited and sure. and, and, and you know and welcome. I heard I heard you talk about this with some of your talks in your talk show with with the thought partners, which is so important and so interesting. And um, talking about recruiting diversity and how uh, a lot of recruiters will hire people like them. And this, this is definitely a problem in Japan. Mm. And then uh, you've also focused a lot on tech. Uh, you focus, you're from a political scientist background. <laughs> um, a lot of these ideas, for example, about same-sex marriage mm. in Japan, about refugees, equality mm. and, and social justice, a very political, you know, so it, it shining a light on these things from diverse parts of diversity and innovation is so important. And so a, a talk show like yours is a great way to discuss these things. Have you also, do you have any case studies like in consulting when you've been talking about these things inside a corporate setting or organization where people have been receptive to talking about it or are people kind of, ah, that's not what we do. I don't want to talk about it. I, you know, I have been actually pretty floored by the interest and curiosity uh, for thinking about I mean, I think there's an appetite to talk about and understand really the mechanisms between diversity and innovation. And that's why I decided that even though we're, we are a diversity, equity and inclusion oriented consulting and education company, but I, I thought as a political scientist, I studied parliaments for 25 years around the world, you know, looking at parliaments, com like really cross national comparisons of diversity in parliaments and looking at 
all of the manifestations that I had looked at of partial inclusion. Oh, we included some women. Oh, we included some minority religious candidates. Oh, we included a minority, uh, you know, lesbian candidate. Oh, we've included a minority language group candidate. Therefore, we have inclusion. And I looked at that for par in parliaments for 25 years and said, inclusion does not get you equal influence. It does not give you an experience of equality. It does not give you impact in terms of feeling that you have voice and that when you speak your truth within that space, you're heard if that space is still very much affected by a logic of majority minority dynamics where it is the the majority group culture that wins and carries the day or the group think be it um, the group think on uh, you know male dominated spaces thinking from a masculine worldview or if it is a heteronormative view where it really is the view of only marriage as a straight person's you know cultural baggage and experience and so you don't need to think about anything else when you have those majority minority informal tactics or informal power politics that are always in the system you can have inclusion and it's completely token and so i just felt like i'm not working for inclusion in that sense and i know that too often it becomes that and so i just thought we all want a more innovative society we want a society where there's robust competition of ideas for democracy for companies for all of these spaces of democracy we need a robust competition of ideas that's collegial that's collegial that's not antagonistic it's not you know i hate you because you have a different idea it's like we have the possibility of a, of a of an exchange of ideas that is positive and so i think when people start thinking about why we value democracy as a, as a model of government that creates space for minority views to be heard and to be not um, attacked as the enemy, I mean, I think we want to create that dynamic in having corporate cultures where there isn't a groupthink that makes the oddball or the black sheep really sort of, you know, vilified and then suffering, you know, bullying and marginalization and harassment because they're the, they're the black sheep at work. So when we, when we transpose those ideas of why we want to protect space for difference, that you could always be, anybody can be on the receiving end of being scapegoated or being the black sheep, right? Or being the, the oddball out or being the person with the wrong opinion. And I think as individuals start realizing that, then they go, wow, if we don't build out an ecosystem that supports difference, my individuality might be up for being taxed next time. It might be me, right? It might be that I will be. And so no one is really protected if we don't protect diversity and individuality in all of its manifestations and all of its, all of its uh, beautiful, you know, richness. And so when I, when I sort of bring it back to that political philosophy, and I talk about that with certain, you know, when I speak with, with, with not only with corporations, but also with uh, policymakers and others, I think there's a there's kind of a, a sigh sometimes to say, huh, we don't really talk about democracy anymore, do we? We, we don't really talk about why there is this connection between supporting individual rights, supporting respect for diversity and difference and freedom and why that's actually why we choose democratic self-government as the best model of, or the least worst model of government. And that's why we think it's better than communism or authoritarianism or, or other models of government, because we think that each individual has a fair shot of being heard and, and building coalitions for change with others who think like them and saying, I wanna live in a country that the togetherness is, is shaped by these values of equality and these values of respect for individuality and difference. And when you get those coalitions for change and people can be a part of that, it's exciting and it's positive. And part of the challenge I think now is re reminding advanced democracies in particular, and I don't mean to single out advanced democracies, but I will. I think that de advanced democracies in the G7 in particular, they take for granted what democracy means and the citizens and the countries and the corporations too forget the broader democratic pie or ecosystem that we're living in gives us all the tools we need. And if we can think about bringing those democratic tools of equality and freedom and respect for individuals and individuality and difference back into the corporation ecosystem, the corporate ecosystem, that is the driver 
of innovation. It's the driver of innovation, not only for democratic debate and exchange and finding adaptations for our society to survive and our humanity to survive on this planet. We need that competition of collegial ideas exchange. But of course, it's the it's the root of then the innovation and the vibrancy within companies too, if we can build a more flat, egalitarian, you know, space. And that's where inclusion is for me, without, it's really equality that I think we're building. I mean, inclusion has become the corporate speak, but I actually think we're building equality or what we also sometimes call equity, depending on which lens you're using. In Canada, we talk about substantive equality and substantive equality is the same as what we would mean as the Americans call equity. And so uh, that substantive output of, of equal opportunity and equal playing field, right? Equal opportunity to, to contribute your zone of genius to the company, regardless of which body you were born into. Yeah. Um, I think that's what we're missing as the conversation to get people to go a little more deep and philosophical a little bit, but then come back and let's be pragmatic and let's like, let's implement, let's implement because the devil's in the details of the implementation. It's so hard and it's so complex. And uh, in many ways, when I think of inclusivity and diversity and innovation, I, I think of what's missing visually, that we don't have representation so we can't even take a step towards inclusiveness or diversity because everybody looks the same. It's mm -hmm. run by old men. And that's not only in Japan. We're seeing this around the world. But I'm so encouraged, like talking to my sister yesterday about in the boardroom, she's starting to feel more on an equal level in conversations. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Even at the upper levels. So she's starting to see progress, even in Japan, where we yeah. still see a lot of manals. And yes. <laughs> I, think, I think we talked about this as well, how a lot of talent is moving overseas, yeah. mainly because of this lack of inclusion in the process or having your voice heard. Lack of equality, right? I mean, people realize, and I think, you know, the, the challenge for Japan if the ecosystem is not, if, I mean, at some point people decide if I make an investment in this space for my career and for my next 10 years, will I be supported back? Will this corporation support me back? Or will this society give me the opportunities I need and have the, the playing field and the basic infrastructure, what we would call equality architecture, maybe in political scientists, like, you know, do you, is there the is the, the core architecture of the society building equality by intention, not by accident. You design it, right? You design for equality and you design for equity. If the ecosystem is not ripe and if it's not ready, and if the company also isn't mitigating against the societal you know, problems, if it's gender equality in Japan, a lack of inclusion and lack of recognition of LGBTQ and same-sex marriage possibilities, if it's a lack of dual citizenship uh, in Japan, as you're looking around, if, if we're thinking about global talent and the fact that, you know, global talent is being sought out in Singapore and Hong Kong and in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, where does Japan fit within that competition, broadly speaking, worldwide? And where does the lack of societal architecture and, and infrastructure for equality make the society harder to choose and want to choose to move to? Um, and then also if the companies aren't severely mitigating for those lacks in the broader culture and societal and legal basis, then why would you go to that company and live in that and, and work for that company in specifically in Japan? And so this is the broader global competition, right? And, and when we're talking about, I tend to not talk about, um, I know they talk about talent recruitment and, and talent, uh, um, management, which sounds to me still very top down. I think we're in a dynamic of diverse talent mobilization where talent mobilizes itself and decides where it wants to live and where it wants to thrive and where it's going to really be able to make good investments in a society that gives back to them and good investments in a corporation or a company or a lifestyle that supports their happiness and their freedom. And I think this is where Japan has some really key change, you know, really key uh, changes to make, I guess, and, and in terms of wanting to be competitive. Uh, as a host society. And I think that Japan could absolutely, with a lot of political will at the highest levels in the economic elite and the political elite, I think Japan really could be 
an amazingly competitive host society, but it does mean you know, undertaking a change management in what traditional Japanese-ness and Japanese culture has up until now meant. And um, I really do think there's space for like a Rewa Japan where it would be multiculturally acknowledged in the law and policy and you could have dual citizenship and you could be, I could be a Canadian descent Japanese national. You know, my spouse is a Japanese descent Canadian passport holder and no one would ever question his Canadianness by virtue of his, you know, Japanese, you know, descent, racial, ethnographic, you know, ethno-national makeup. Um, you can immigrate into Canada and you can be considered and seen as fully Canadian notwithstanding that racial content, right? And I know we still have racism in Canada and that's not solved. And we have issues of, you know, First Nations reconciliation that are not solved. But the core constitutional democracy and the rules of engagement and the rules of the official rules of the Canadian citizenship definitions give you the possibility of becoming a Canadian national, a Canadian passport holder um, with full rights, right? Full rights and recognition. And I think Japan can move towards that and have multicultural inclusion in more a meaningful way. My children don't need to be bullied for the fact that they're half Japanese and half non-Japanese. They don't, they really, they don't need to inherit that. I think that it doesn't serve anybody in Japan. Neither does it serve the children, nor does it serve their friendship groups to have those race politics affecting them. Um, but dual citizenship is not an option yet. So they're seen only as foreign national, even though there's a half Japanese and a cultural born and raised in Japan experience that's just denied, completely denied all the time. And uh, when you're called, oh no, they're just they're just foreigners, as if they're outsider. That ultimately is hard. Is you know, it's it's hard for children. I mean, they just want to belong, and they don't want to be caught up in all of the adults, you know, close-mindedness of of what is traditional Japanese-ness, right? And 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 yet these children are inheriting the problem too. So many children across Japan inherit this and experience this. Um, why should they have to? Why wouldn't we fix it? Why can't we get on with just fixing that? Um, and I think it would make, you know, Reiwa Japan such a, I mean, it already is a vibrant, sociologically vibrant, but it would make those individuals um, bring their full talent to enrich every part of Japanese society. Right now, there's certain jobs where you have to be a Japanese national to hold that job in Japan, which means none of the foreign nationals and none of the immigrant descent, unless they naturalize, none of that talent gets to enrich any of those other, you know, kinds of jobs in terms of the national government, the policy making space, the bureaucracy running for electoral office, none of those ideas can flow in those spaces, because it's, it's, it's a nationality requirement. Um, and without dual nationality, I think it's unfair to make children choose, you know, uh, that, oh, you have two inherited legacies of rich cultural background, pick one, because we won't want to let you have both. Why wouldn't you want them to have both? That's, of course, such a benefit for children and a blessing. And so many international families in Japan, I think, are struggling with this during COVID. You know, you have one parent Japanese national and one parent non-Japanese national, so you can't go home to check on your, your own parents or your in-laws because one of your spouses can't get back into the country, right? You're not a citizen. Um, so one parent and the children can get in and out easily because they have nationality, but one parent is the oddball out left out and so can't have freedom of mobility to check upon their family during COVID. Um, this has really been a problem, I think, for Japan is the only country within the G7 who stood out for not having sort of e even recognition for, for permanent residence in Japan um, yeah. to um, have that mobility, right? Richard, so, Richard here says his kids never experienced any bullying or bigotry, etc. And I think I could see lucky. that about, about my kids as well, that, that we are completely white we have no japanese blood in our family but yet our kids born and raised here but it's mm -hmm. for for my kids it's more identifying as japanese because mm. they speak japanese just like any japanese child growing up here um but they will never be japanese yeah. uh, officially they will never be allowed to vote um, in the government during coronavirus there's mm -hmm. discussions about whether international residents should be allowed the vaccine or not. There's discussions mm. about whether international permanent residents should be allowed the subsidy or not. I mean, these mm. 
discussions really need to be worked out if you want people to stay invested <laughs> right. in your country, right? Well, and I <laughs> I hate to, you know, uh, keep back, coming back to democracy and the democracy piece, but, you know, uh, as a Canadian growing up, the core debates that happen around, you know, the American Revolution and the revolts against, uh, you know, in France and even, you know, the, the decision um, to get local self-rule is this idea of no representation, no taxation without representation. Why can you tax, you cannot tax a people that you, that you deny political representation and political voice in the system. And so this was part of the whole revolt, right? The American you know, revolt, and, and even in Canada, you had this resistance against the crown to say, you cannot just keep taxing us and govern us from top down we want our own parliament. We want our own electoral assent. We want to have the rules in, and the taxation to really be managed by uh, a local self-government philosophy. Otherwise, you shouldn't be taxing us. You shouldn't be taking funds away. And I, I always come back to this and think, well, Japan is happy to tax, right? And, and expect all of the same responsibilities to be held by permanent residents and foreign residents. But the full rights to political inclusion and representation are not forthcoming. And so from a, from the perspective of democratic philosophy, um, there is a gap in terms of the theory and practice of democracy when you are taxing and giving all the burdens of the law, but none of the benefits of political freedom and political voice. And that's a tension. That is an unresolved tension in post-World War II Japan that at some point will need to be tackled because it it is an outlier country within the g7 on that perspective it's an outlier um and it's it's not really consistent with the really f philosophical tenets of of democratic self-government and self-rule um and we are not for anybody listening we are not saying japan is a bad place to live it's oh a my god place to live been here for we, so many so we long invested. right we so invested we care in japan. about <laughs> japan that's why we're talking about it because exactly. we want it to be better you know this is not a slam no. on japan and i and mean people might say go back to your own country and that's but that misses you know, the point, right? Because I, I critique Canada as heavily as I critique Japan because I care so intensely about both countries being beacons of hope for freedom and for equality. And I believe in both countries' ability to be that beacon. And I think Canada does a beautiful job in North America and in the English-speaking sort of Commonwealth system as a beacon of freedom. Um, and democratic freedom and democratic equality. I think we are doing a good job. We're building and we're intentionally building that out by design. It's a competitive advantage for us as a, as a country. And I think companies have realized that and they go settle there because of that. I think Japan within Asia is such a, has so many great things going for it. I mean, public safety and, you know, the universe, you know, the childcare system and the, the uh, you know, parental leave. These are things that other G7 countries haven't solved yet right that that japan has solved first and and i just see okay there's there's so much more room to move the dial and and i wish for given and having you know been here for off and on 20 25 years i just think i really want to see that progress come yeah. for all the japanese women and men who i have worked with over 25 years and who i care about and who they feel downtrodden by it as well they feel a sense of despair and i don't want them to feel that and give up hope for their country either i, I think right. that hope we I, need to keep absolutely. protecting yeah i i remember tra we were traveling around china for two months and uh maybe even longer and we were traveling by train and even buying a ticket this is a long time ago even buying a ticket was so frustrating you had to go up to the booth wait in a long line go up to the booth try to say something really difficult in chinese and often your money was thrown back at you and you had to start again doing it over and over <gasps> and i remember saying to some local chinese that we met um that we were talking to really nice people having a great conversation. And we were just saying, we're just so frustrated traveling around, it's so difficult. And they said, what do you think it's like for us? It's like a hundred times worse, you know? And so I try to remember that in Japan, <laughs> of course things are frustrating. And, you know, I think for a lot of 
Japanese nationals, it's it's frustrating it's for them more, as well. But it, yeah. it seems worse because they don't have a passport to get to go out elsewhere to another country easily, right? So Just, yeah, there is there is a lot of frustration. Or, for locals or as they or well. they don't or they don't wish to leave their families. They don't feel right. they should have yeah. to be separated from their families to pursue those you know opportunities or to have access to a job where they don't feel sexually harassed or you know bullied because they're gay or they don't you know want to hide who they are or feel like they're not accepted or just feel like it's a it's a bloody long working day like why do i have to work 10 hour days and yeah. why is that normal why yeah. would that be a good quality of life and why hasn't you know hasn't there been more movement and just really creating a, a more humane lifestyle because i mean i think often i i've spent so much time in rural japan and in northern Nagano, and the I, I fell in love with all of the older men and women who were my mentors 20 years ago when I was trying to navigate City Hall to find tactical ways of bringing new ideas forward for projects about multiculturalism or same-sex marriage or, you know, gender equality or, you know, the right for women and men to have separate surnames in marriage, the Fufu Bese conversation. And all of those, we were doing literacy building activities through City Hall for the population in Japanese and then speaking and having these wonderful Japanese elder men and women who would who would give me insights on well if you present it this way it might go over better or if you present it this way and they were on side and they were 70 years old so don't tell me that rural northern Inaka 70 year old Jichan Bachan don't believe in equality and, pro and progress for Japan because in my experience I've met so many and it wasn't just the young people at all. It, it was it was really the 60 and 70 year olds who said, yeah, we've seen this for so many years now, nothing's changing. And we, we're kind of now really frustrated that there's no change. We're surprised there's no change. We don't understand why in 20 years there's been not more change. So they also felt it. And they they loved that as an outsider, I had the ability to come and present some of those ideas. And, and I would often share a Canadian example or another. And that creates a safe space, right? You're learning about a different country. You're not learning about Japan. But then we can do a, an imagination exercise to say, well, what if this was possible in Japan? What would that change about how Japanese people would have equality and happiness and freedom? And you can have those conversations in a safe way. But those were the 60 and 70 and 80-year-old provocative you know, grandpas and grandmas that I had the very deep honor of collaborating with both, you know, them within City Hall, they worked in City Hall and were my colleagues, but they were also citizens in the city telling me, you know, oh, that Kacho, that division chief is, he's really narrow minded. If you want to go around him, you got to do this. And they would tell me, <laughs> right? They would tell me how to get things done, right? Hey, if um, you can connect with the older people in Japan, they're you so an in because so they lovely. are the majority as well yeah. now. Uh, thanks for joining Naz yeah. Nazim. It's great to see you. He says, great to meet expats living in Japan. <laughs> I'm an expat living in Italy since oh. 1992. That's nice. Interesting. Yeah. I'd love to go to Italy. I keep thinking, oh, oh but the pandemic, Everybody's when am dying, I going to get to go back to Italy? <laughs> travel right now, right? <laughs> I know, I know. So uh, let's, we've got uh, about three minutes left. Oh, okay. uh, you've, you've focused on tech a few times tech yes. and innovation yeah. tech and inclusive uh workplaces do you want to talk a little bit about tech because i think this is an area which is really kind of on the rise in japan yeah. i just think i mean i think why i've focused on tech in japan in the last three years and the events that we've hosted and that i've curated and that i've been able to find really interesting partners um is one the tech space realizes that I think diversity is core to innovation and there seems to be a much more sort of, ah, uh, that's just a given that we understand that piece and we're open to that piece. And maybe it's the influence of the Googles of the world and the Microsoft trying to really change the way that tech and the Silicon Valley and the startup logic of doing things outside the box, right? That you don't have one way of doing things that is kind of implicit in the startup tech space. Um, but also in, you know, the, the shift to corporate cultures that are really praising um, all kinds of diversities. And I think that's where, for Japan, that's an opportunity for those tech spaces to move the dial first and to generate that this is, you know, there's case studies or there's the jire, the past practice, that this is possible. I also think that with technology, I mean, technology is somewhere, even if there's a gap in terms of women in STEM or women in STEAM, 
uh, in those STEM fields. Um, I think that in the future, there is more room for women to be taking up those careers and to be pursuing those professions, getting training in that. Um, and as they do, automatically it shifts their earning capacity like overnight, or it shifts the earning capacity of other demographics. Now, granted, if you're not interested in, in those degrees and in those, those areas of life, other parts of companies are becoming digitalized. They're having digital transformation. And so even companies that aren't tech companies have a heck of a lot of technology that we have to be able to use and you know, navigate and have excellence and, and understanding in. So closing the gender digital divide, if you will, um, and making sure that tech companies in particular are hiring for diversity. Um, and then also tech companies are thinking about the end user and the diversity of the end users there's those two impetus, right, where we're getting a different conversation around why it's not only a business strategy, an obvious business strategy for consumer user, uh, you know, um, and consumer perspective, but also in terms of that, that, that democratizing potential of technology. Now, technologies are also if you automate everything and you, you build in the biases of humans into the AI, then the AI reproduces and exacerbates all the human bias to the nth degree. And it makes it that much worse. So we all always still need to be having um, a human stewardship and a principled human stewardship of all of our technology and our AI, because you can't take out human judgment and you can't take out that piece of self-government that we ultimately, at the end of the day, there's always a principled decision that needs to happen around what is the ethics? Yeah. What are the ethics that need to be still written into what we're doing in the AI and then the way we're designing our technologies? We still need that human stewardship and we need the diversity of human stewardship to make sure it's building equality uh, and bringing innovation that's actually a good for society and not just exacerbating those inequalities. So I think it's a space of emancipation potentially, but I'm not, I'm not, it really depends on how the humans use it as with everything, right? It depends on, on how we use it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is awesome. Thank you so much. That was a great discussion. <laughs> and uh, an hour is way too short. I know you take us way in so many different places. Short. So many different places you take us, JJ. It's so interesting. <laughs> Wait, well, that's that is what you do. And that is what I'm trying to do is to realize how wide reaching our topics are and mm. how interconnected everything is yes. and to just keep bringing different people in and keep discussing it more and things will get better hopefully the more we talk about it yeah I'm, i think we can you know thought partnering like this um i think it's a it's a it's a disruptive practice of trying to just bring something new into the space and airing out different ideas of public discussion, intellectual exchange, policy exchange, new ideas, right? Just having different viewpoints aired. Um, I think maybe again through podcasting and these kinds of lives, we're getting a lot more of that now. And to some extent, I can't keep up with all the live streams out there I want to watch and podcasts yeah. I want to listen to. But we're filling, I think, the public space. And I think the challenge next is to get those to be really public discussions. Yeah, definitely. And I love your approach to keep it positive and to try to look for little ways that we can improve. And that's my approach as well. Uh, we have to stay positive. There's so much negativity out there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you for all you're doing. You're doing a great job. <laughs> well, thank you for hosting me today. And I look forward to our next conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, everybody, for joining today. We had some great comments and questions. It was great to see you guys here. If you have any comments or questions, please write it below, whatever medium you're using, and we will try to respond. Thank you so much. Yes. Uh, tomorrow, 5 p.m., the same time as today's talk, I'll be talking with Dave Enright, another Nagano native over Yay, there canadian canadian as well yeah and he runs an outdoor adventure center and we're going to talk about awesome. how he's been able to survive hopefully during the coronavirus slowdown and his uh vision for the future so that's awesome. a great conversation well, he's a great you know friend and and a mover and shaker through the canadian chamber of commerce too and so i say my hellos and uh totally support all he's been building uh, for so many years here in Nagano. It's such a beautiful playground. I want everybody to come and see it when the pandemic is <laughs> making it safe. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got such a great area and a lot of 
very enthusiastic, positive people making good things happen. So that'll be a great discussion tomorrow too. Great. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a great night. Take care. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. You can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, Buy Me a Coffee, Coffee, or Haps. Have a great day.